Father, thank you for another year together as a church striving to live on the mission that you have given us to share the good news of the gospel and make more disciples as we await the return of Christ. Lord, thank you for times like New Year's when we have a a minute to think back and reflect on all of the ways that you have been faithful to us. I pray that with every year that passes, we would all grow stronger in our faith out of the realization that you always come through. You always ensure that we are provided for and taken care of when we seek first your kingdom. God, now as we begin a new sermon series this morning, my prayer is that it would help us to center ourselves at the start of this new year on on who we are and what we are all about as your people. Jesus says, as your church, we want to be a people who understand clearly what we believe as you have revealed it to us in Scripture, and we want to be unified around the treasuring of those truths that we know should shape us in the trajectory of our lives with you. Holy Spirit, would you be with us now and do what I cannot? Encourage, strengthen, convict, and conform hearts and minds as you see fit for the glory of God and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, today we're kicking off our uh, first sermon series of the year, and it is titled, We Are Baptists. We are Baptists. Some of you are like, we are? Yes, we are. In his, <laughs> in his autobiography, the, the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says that uh, after his baptism, his mother wrote him a letter in which she said, Charles, I often pray that the Lord would make you a Christian, but I never asked that you might become a Baptist. To which Spurgeon replied, Ah, mother, the Lord has answered your prayer with his usual bounty and given you abundantly above what you asked or thought. And so now you you may be wondering, when so many churches are clearly trying to distance themselves from denominational affiliations by removing words like Baptist from their names, uh, why would we be shouting something like that from the rooftops uh, with a series title like We Are Baptists? Maybe you're thinking, Tad, don't you know, (laughs) the word Baptist has uh, cultural connotations of being old and outdated and maybe even crusty and kind of legalistic. And yes, I, I do know that. But I would put forward to you that understanding the true meaning of our Baptist identity is actually a really good thing. It's, a, it's really a lack of understanding that leads people to think it's a negative thing. After all, the, the original intent behind denominational affiliations was a good one. And I think one that's maybe needed more than ever. The original purpose of denominational affiliation was to give doctrinal clarity and to bring unity. And just to be clear, the, that word doctrine, it just means core belief, okay? Uh, and so my hope in this series is simply to bring clarity to our core beliefs as a church and, and hopefully show that those doctrines are the things that should unite us in a culture that wants to divide us based on political party 
race, gender, really anything else they can think of. As Christians, we want to galvanize ourselves, that is, protect ourselves against that kind of an evil agenda. I think the best way to do that is by spending time making sure that we are all making the main things the main things. Does that make sense? Okay, I see some head nods. Thank you. All right. So as I already alluded to, American Christianity is becoming increasingly non-denominational. And just to be clear, that, that's not completely bad, okay? Uh, there are some great non-denom churches and many non-denom churches be, that became non-denominational because they wanted to avoid stigmas or negative reputations associated with umbrella religious affiliations. But uh, on the flip side of that good intention, there are also some dangers that have surfaced. Not, not all, but um, many non-denominational churches. Man, that's hard to say that many times. But anyway, uh, many non-denominational churches have wound up with problems like doctrinal ambiguity, right? Or leading folks to a place of not knowing what they believe about certain core doctrines. Or on the other hand, maybe an overemphasis on pet doctrines. Or, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, pastors and leaders of non-denominational churches and become unaffiliated with a denomination because whether intentionally or unintentionally, they, they like to make something central that shouldn't be central, okay? Like speaking in tongues, or in times, or politics, or, or whatever the case may be. Or, or another widespread danger is, okay, a lopsided concern with how people feel over and above what they believe, right? Which is how you get churches that are, quote, watered down, right? In their teaching. They wind up trying to fabricate an experience rather than just sticking to the tried and true method of teaching the Bible. And so in my opinion, being Baptist in our affiliation means that we stand for something specific and historic that goes back hundreds and even thousands of years. We're not trying... We're not trying to chart a new course as a church of mostly millennial Christians. Okay, this is a church made up of mostly millennial Christians. We're we're not trying to make a, a new course here. We are devoting ourselves to orthodox, tried and true Christianity. And so we put a high value on actually knowing what we believe and why we believe it. Okay, because as the famous quote goes, If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. I'm not sure who said that. I think maybe Alexander Hamilton or something. Maybe that was just in the play. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's a a great quote. And sadly, it's what happened to the church after about a thousand years or so. At at that point, there had been no large divisions, and so it was just the Catholic church. But uh, unfortunately the Catholic Church began to grow corrupt financially and doctrinally. And as a result, the Christians of that time began to lose a clear sense of what their foundational beliefs really were. And this is why the Protestant Reformation came about. Have you heard about that? The Protestant Reformation. That's why the Protestant Reformation came about. In an effort to bring the church back and recenter believers of that the believers of that day on the basics of Christianity. I'm not here to give a, a full-on church history lesson, <laughs> but because 
the, Reform, the Reformation in the 1500s was the soil of modern-day Protestant denominations like Baptists, that, that Baptists grew out of. It's, it's crucial, I think, to clarify what that still means for us today, because it, it does still mean something for us today. As Winston Churchill said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And so for the first two weeks of this series, we're going to be talking about uh, something called the five solas. And essentially, the, the five solas were five sayings or slogans that emerged out of the Protestant Reformation in an effort to reform the church out of its corrupted state. Okay, these, these five... What are you laughing about, David? Okay, all right. Pay attention. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Essentially, these... these <laughs> he, was, he was over here cutting up, and I'm like, come on, David. Anyway, all right. Okay, five, five solas that we're at. Okay. Five sayings or slogans that encapsulate the Protestant Reformation, okay, in an effort to reform the church. And so, they, essentially, they, they try to encapsulate the, the bare-bones essentials of Christianity and thus a proper understanding of salvation. And they're called solas because sola is the Latin word that means alone or only. And so the five solas are as follows. Sola gratia, which is grace alone. Solus Christus, which is Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. And sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, again, I want to reiterate why it's important for you to know this. These are the basics of the, the Protestant Christian faith, and thus they are the foundational building blocks for the Baptist faith. There is more to being Baptist than the five solas, and we'll talk about that in weeks three through five, but there's not less to being Baptist than the five solas. If you, if you lose any of these, and not only are you not Baptist, but I would argue that you may not be Christian in the biblical sense, okay? This is uh, not some kind of spiritual elitist mentality. It's just the mentality that what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. Amen? Okay. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. At Mosaic, uh, we, we try not to split hairs over every doctrine because we're not people who are willing to die on every hill. However, these five solas taken together are a hill that we are willing to die on. And this may sound a little strange because we live in the midst of a culture that tells us, right, it, it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you're sincere about what you believe, right? That's, that's the mindset of the culture. But, but that mentality is incompatible with our worldview. Objective truth about our existence and purpose as human beings does exist. Objective truth exists, and we believe that the Bible is the only source of that truth. So sincerity matters. Being genuine about what you believe matters for sure, but so does accuracy. So does accuracy. There are certain things as Christians that we cannot afford to get wrong. Okay, And the five solas are a few of the most important 
ones. And like I said, we'll take two weeks to talk about the five solas. This week we'll be addressing the first three. And if I had to articulate the importance of the first three in one sentence, I would just say it this way. I would say the essence of Christianity is that sinners can be freely reconciled to God and experience fullness of life with Him forever by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Like, that's why we're all here today, right? That's why we're all here today. Like, just, just straight up, okay, I, I, I do get paid to pastor this church. I'm thankful for that because I, I wouldn't be able to pastor this church if they didn't compensate me. Uh, I don't have another stream of income to support my family of six, okay, outside of being compensated full-time as a pastor. But I would not, I would not pastor this church even if it quadrupled my salary, okay, if it wasn't primarily about the message of the first three solas, okay, that sinners can be freely reconciled to God and experience fullness of life with Him forever by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, it's that important. And maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, isn't that just the gospel? The answer is yes. Yes, that, that is the gospel. Hence, the importance of our unwillingness to ever drift away from these doctrines. Everything we believe hinges on these three solas. That as sinners who were at one time separated from God, we were brought back into right relationship with Him again on the basis of grace alone offered to us in the person and work of Christ alone by the means of faith alone. If you've been attending Mosaic a while, you've undoubtedly heard me say that week after week, and so perhaps you wonder, how could we ever move away from those truths? How could we ever move away from those truths? But like a responsible parent who warns their children of the dangers of the world around them, as a responsible pastor, I I must warn you of the reality that some churches out there are No longer churches in the sense that they have abandoned the solas for something more palatable to the masses. Okay? It has a big fancy name, so bear with me. It's called, okay, moralistic therapeutic deism. I'm gonna explain that. Okay? Moralistic therapeutic deism. It it most often masquerades itself as Christianity, though, because it has contradicted the tenets of grace alone. Christ alone, and faith alone, it is not Christianity. It is not Christianity. There was a large-scale study performed in 2005 to understand moralistic therapeutic deism because researchers had discovered that it was the dominant belief system of most religious American teenagers at that time. Which, to be clear, if you were a teenager in 2005, that means you're how old today? Okay, I'll let you think about that. You'll realize why I'm bringing this up, all right? So as, as described by author and researcher Christian Smith and his team, moralistic therapeutic deism consists of these five beliefs. should be on the screen. It's on the screen. Great. Okay. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the, the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay. Number two, God wants people to be good nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, 
The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. That is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And so for the next few minutes, what I want to do is labor to show you how that belief system, while incredibly dominant in many American churches today, is radically different than the message of the five solas. And I'll do that by explaining from God's Word what is meant by the terms grace, Christ, and faith, and how they oppose a form of deism characterized by mere morals and therapy. Okay, Let's start with grace. If you look grace up in the dictionary, you'll find a, a long list of definitions. But the, the general idea is that a grace is something that is good. And you'll also see that it has the connotation not of something good that is achieved, but that is given. Okay, not something that's achieved, something is given, a good thing that is given. Pertains to theology, if you scroll down in those definitions, you'll see the definition of unmerited favor, that is unearned kindness. And this concept is absolutely shot through the Bible, that God made mankind to be image bearers of himself, but that after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin or disobedience to God, the relationship between God and man is now one that is only able to continue on the basis of grace or unmerited kindness on God's end. Okay, And so, the central message of Christianity is not be good. Okay. It's not be good. It's God is good and does good to people who have not deserved it. You follow me on that? Okay. Let me just read you a few references to bring this to light. Romans 3, 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul writes this regarding the state of humanity. He says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty clear. When it comes to moral goodness, we don't just have it or generate it on our own. Okay. Luke 18. In Luke 18, a religious man inquiring of how he could be saved asked Jesus, not realizing that Jesus is in fact God in human flesh. He says, good teacher, okay, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not saying here that he's not God. He's interacting with this man. He's attempting to cause this man to doubt his false presupposition that men can earn salvation with moral behavior or by simply being good. Okay. 
James 1.17, the little brother of Jesus clarifies the origin of good. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And uh, there are more references that I could read that I won't for sake of time. Uh, and because I, I think that these three sufficiently support my point, okay, that the dominant message of the Bible is not... You better be good or else. You better be good or else. That's not the point of the Bible. It's God is so good. God is so good. And he pours out so much good to people who try as they might cannot be good on their own. Okay. This flies in the face of moralism, doesn't it? This flies in the face of moralism. The message of moralism is just be good. Just be nice. Just do the right thing. The only problem with that is as C.S. Lewis articulates it, we all have that sense of what's right and what's wrong, what we ought to do. And yet we also all have this pesky little voice inside of us that gnaws at us every time we inevitably don't do what we know we ought to do, right? It's called a conscience, and it's hardwired into all of us by God. And so I love how another pastor I listened to said this over Christmas. He said, a lot of us have a Santa Claus theology, right? A lot of us have a Santa Claus theology where we treat God as if he's the divine Santa who sees you when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake, knows if you've been bad or good, and who insists that you be good for goodness sake. But friends, listen to me. This is not a correct characterization of the God of the Bible. This is not a correct characterization of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't need to check his list twice because he sovereignly knows which one you're on. It's not the good one. Right? He knows that as the psalmist says, your mother conceived and brought you forth in sin. You didn't become a sinner the first time you sinned. You were born a sinner, which is why you keep on sinning. Okay? And yet consider this. Though he knows you and the sinful state of your life, he has yet to cut you off from his grace. <laughs> he knows the sinful state of your heart, and he has yet to cut you off from his grace. He just keeps filling up your metaphorical stocking with more kindness, more provision, more good. Right? And so I say to you, that we must hold fast to the doctrine of grace alone because there is no other basis by which we can be saved. There's no other way to be saved. I'm not saying that human beings are totally incapable of doing anything good ever. Of course, I know there are non-religious humanitarian organizations and so forth. I'm saying 
No matter how hard we try to be good and no matter how many good deeds we try to pull off in our own strength, our lives are still tainted with sin. That is, we still do, say, and think things with great regularity that are not good. Don't we? Anybody else in here still doing, saying, and thinking things that are not good? If there's anyone in here who's not doing that, please come up here now. I'm going to give you this microphone and let you teach, right? And so if we desire salvation, we must first realize it's not something we are able to merit or achieve with our good behavior. It's something that can only be had by the grace of God. And guys, let me remind you, this is a very good thing. This is a very good thing, okay? Some of you know this because I shared it on Facebook, but our four-year-old had become a bit enamored with Santa Claus this year. And uh, I'll just assume, well, last year, I guess, and uh, I'll just assume that you guys know uh, what we believe about Santa Claus because I talked about it in our Advent series. But uh, my wife, who is clearly extremely wise, said to our son, well, buddy, Santa Claus brings gifts based on your behavior. Mom and dad give gifts based on grace. Which one sounds better to you? (laughs) Which one sounds better to you? And when I heard that, I just thought, man, that was straight savage. Like, (laughs) oh my gosh. Santa is going to have to walk that one off for a while. But seriously, <laughs> now, now that I think about it, now that I think about it, it's a great question for adults too. It's a great question for adults too. Because the Santa Claus God, the moralistic therapeutic deism God, deals with you based on your behavior. Okay. The God of the Bible deals with you based on grace. Which one of those sounds better to you? Which one sounds better to you? Yeah. And that's why, as Christians, we cling dearly to sola gratia, grace alone. And we reject a moralistic approach to our faith in the sense that we don't believe our relationship with God can be achieved merely on striving to be good. Okay? But rather, we believe... The nature of our relationship with God is outlined in Psalm 103 that says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. It's grace. It's grace. All right, now the second piece of moralistic therapeutic deism that the solas are going to unravel is the therapeutic part. Before I get into this, I just want to go on record, okay? As having said, I am not against all forms of therapy, okay? I'm not. 
There are indeed situations that we find ourselves in, in this broken world, where therapy is needed to help us heal from painful and traumatic things that we may have had to endure. Okay, That's the purpose of true therapy. But in much of modern secular therapy and counseling, the highest good is expressed to be feeling good about yourself or loving yourself, as some have said it, okay? Which I, if I wanted that, like if I wanted that, if I wanted to love myself, I wouldn't pay for therapy. I'd just buy the new Katy Perry album, okay? Just saying. All right, unfortunately, this philosophy has, has bled over into many churches to the point that their sermons, they sound more like motivational speeches or, or TED Talks geared towards helping you become the very best you that you can be, right? And to that notion, I would simply say that the main objective in Christianity is not for people to feel good about themselves. It's for them to be saved from themselves, The main objective in Christianity is not for you to feel good about yourself. It's for you to be saved from yourself. All right? Don't get me wrong here. Okay? Don't get me wrong. I hope, I hope you leave our services and our outreaches and our groups and everything we do as a church, I hope you leave those things feeling encouraged. I definitely am not trying to breed some kind of unhealthy self-loathing in you. Okay? However, biblically speaking... I think you will feel the best about yourself when you have come to grips with the fact that you are not enough. That you're not enough. Regardless of what Rachel Hollis said in Girl, Wash Your Face, or what you heard in that Tony Robbins YouTube video, or whatever, you might be able to never miss a day at the gym. And you might be able to consume the perfect ratio of macros to hone your physique. And you might be able to schedule every second of your day down to to your bathroom breaks, okay? And never spend a dollar outside of its intended budget line. But this is a timely New Year's message. No matter how on top of it you become, you still need a Savior. You still need a Savior. Actually, a lot of times, the most disciplined people among us are the ones most desperately in need of realizing their need for a Savior because they typically are some of the ones who don't see their need for God. They're prone to think that whatever they need in life can be attained with a tighter routine or more grit. But you see, that's That's the exact mindset that condemns us as sinners in the first place. That's the exact mindset that condemns us as sinners in the first place. The mindset of self-sufficiency that leads to living life in a way where we either forget about or suppress our need for God. Now, in moralistic therapeutic deism, that's okay. Okay, That's okay in moralistic therapeutic deism. Remember the tenets we talked about earlier? The most central objective in life is to feel good about oneself. We don't really need God unless there's some big problem that we need resolved, okay? But once again, 
A very cursory reading of the New Testament is going to refute these commonly held ideas. So let me read you a few references here. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might feel good about, no, sorry, in order that the world might be saved through him. Sorry about that. Acts 4, 11 and 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Titus 3, 4 and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 1, 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, okay? This, this doesn't take a rocket scientist, does it? Okay. The Bible is not opposed to you being happy or feeling good about yourself. In fact, I think that Christians should be some of the happiest people around because of what they know about the grace of God toward them. But that is not the main objective of Christianity, that's not the main objective of Christianity. The, the main objective is for sinners to be saved, for the lost to be found, for the broken to be restored, for the hurting to be healed, for God's alienated, rebellious children to be reconciled back into right, loving relationship with him again. And there's only one way for that to happen. There's only one way for that to happen in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the saving work of Christ's perfect life, atoning death, and miraculous resurrection. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible says no one comes to the Father except through Him. Right? Now, I know that many of you already know that. Okay, so, so why would I harp on it? Why would I harp on it? And the reason is because often in the Bible Belt, where we live, we openly affirm that Jesus is the Savior, don't we? Everybody at Walmart that you go at, they know that, okay? Jesus is the Savior. But we don't live like our greatest need is to be saved, do we? We live like our greatest need is to make more money or have a better marriage, or rid our lives of all the toxic people. Right? And so what we do is we, we treat Jesus like he's some kind of this cosmic genie who, if we just go to church and say his name at the end of our dinner blessing, then he'll give us our three wishes for more money, a better marriage, and less toxic people. When if we would just read the actual words of Jesus, we would see that he is trying to tell us 
We are the toxic people. (laughs) We are the toxic people. Because we live like the objective of life is feeling better about ourselves with more wealth and more physical pleasure when the true objective is to be saved from that sinful, self-centered way of viewing the world. Jesus did not come to die so that we could feel better about ourselves. He came to die to save us from ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, he died for us so we could live for him. He died for us so we could live for him. And that's what it actually means to be saved, to have our eyes opened and be reoriented to the true meaning of life. Him, knowing him, worshiping, and living for him. And this is why we harp so much on Solus Christus, Christ alone. Because Christ alone is the only way that our sins can be atoned for and that the saving grace of God can come to us. Christ is the only way. Okay. And Christ alone is the only one who we were made to live for. We'll talk about that more next week and Soli Deo Gloria, but let's wrap up today by discussing the third sola, fide, faith. Honestly, if you've hung with me through all of this so far, then this one's already come across without saying, but I do need to say it explicitly, okay? Um, the key marker for adherence to Christianity is not knowing there is a God. It's trusting and worshiping the God who has made himself known. You see the difference in those two things? The key marker for adherence to Christianity is not knowing there's a God. Even the demons know that, right? It's trusting and worshiping the God who has made himself known. In other words, in biblical Christianity, faith is not a general thing. It's a very specific thing. Okay, It's not just this kind of vague sense of just believing that life is going to turn out good if we just trust the universe or whatever, right? No. Faith is trust in a person. It's trust in a person. It's not just trust that there's a God out there somewhere like the old man upstairs. I hate that expression. Please never say that expression around me. I do not like it. (laughs) God is not the old man upstairs, okay? That's what deism is. Do you know that? That's what deism is. Deism is the general belief that there is a God out there somewhere who made the universe. That's deism. But biblical faith goes much farther than that. Biblical faith is trust in the God who has revealed himself clearly to us through his son, Jesus. Here's one of the most all-inclusive passages about who Jesus is. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the, be- the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith." Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Faith is believing this. Okay. Faith is believing this. You believe this, then you have faith. Okay. That Jesus is our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer. That Jesus is the one who who made us. He's the one who gives us life and breath and everything. And he is the one who, when we sinned and separated ourselves from him, he came and he found us and he made a way by the blood of his cross to pay for all of our sins, past, present, and future, so that we could enjoy eternal life with him as we were made to. And maybe you know this, but grace and faith go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin, so to speak. Grace is the basis by which we can be saved, and faith is the means by which we are saved. Grace is the basis by which we can be saved. Faith is the means by, by which we are saved. Grace is the substance. Faith is the method. I won't repeat all that I said earlier on grace, but I will simply read you these familiar words from Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's tough, honestly, to tease these two ideas apart because Ephesians 2 is saying that grace and faith together are the gift of God that we cannot do but it has been done for us. Okay, Together, they've been done for us. But the best way that I can say it is that faith is the way that we lay hold. It's the way we lay hold of God's gracious gift of salvation in Christ. Okay, That's what faith is. And as with the others, it stands alone. There's no other way by works, okay? Because God desired that no one would be able to brag about all that they had done in order to be saved, and so he removed that from the equation altogether, right? The essence of Christianity is that sinners can be freely reconciled to God and experience fullness of life with him forever by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are the first three solas, and 
They are indescribably precious to the church. Do you know that? Indescribably precious. If we lose them, we lose everything. Okay? If we lose these, we lose it all. And sadly, many churches are losing them. Many churches are losing them. Trading them, actually, for a counterfeit called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a lame Santa Claus theology. It's incapable of offering real hope or saving anyone. So listen, I, I know, I know I've, I've thrown a lot at you today. A lot of big, strange words that maybe you have never thought through before. I try not to put so many big words in any one sermon because I know that when I do that, it's like a temptation to check out mentally. We have to think harder than usual on a Sunday morning, so sorry about that. But I would encourage you not to do that today. Don't check out today. Strive to understand the difference between grace and moralism, Christ and the therapeutic, faith and deism. Strive to know and understand deeply what you believe and why you believe it. God says through more than one of his prophets, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So let's heed that warning today. By being people, as Jesus' church, who don't forget their most foundational doctrines, but who treasure them and who are constantly being formed and reformed by them. It's a big part of what it means to be Baptist. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you so much for the good news that there's no way we could have ever made our way to you. There's no way we ever could have earned a relationship with you. We couldn't have pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps hard enough or long enough. But Father, you came down to us. You sent your son down to us to make a way that we could be restored to you, that we could have a loving relationship with you again through your son, Jesus that we can truly have salvation, we can have eternal life, we can have abundance of joy forever. And it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God, thank you for all of the many wise, hardworking saints who went before us to write these things in stone. Father, many of whom paid with their life that the church might be preserved, that these precious, precious doctrines of the faith might be preserved for us, that we wouldn't be confused about what the good news really is. God, I pray that we would hold dear these three, first three solas as a church, that we would meditate deeply on them every single day. We'd be often thinking about what they mean for us because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.